Welcome back to the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers can expand their understanding of functional endocrinology and testing, and everyone, no matter who you are, can learn more about their body's most complex communication system. I'm Noah Reed, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Dutch Test, and coming up on this week's episode, we're back to our Endocrine Essential series with the case studies and patterns you'll find when testing with Dutch. The goal is to have a better understanding of the different, sometimes confusing things you find when testing cortisol. These are questions we get asked every day during clinical consults, and Dr. Kelly Roof will be making the complex easier for us to understand. Now, on to the show. Thanks, Noah, and thanks, Kelly, for joining us again. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me back. Happy to have you. We talked about some complex patterns last time on the androgens, testosterone and DHEA, and what do we do with, uh, with all of those patterns we see in our female patients. This time, we're going to talk about a different type of hormone patterns, and that is related to cortisol. So one of the things that we do that's, that's unique that we sort of pioneered is people have looked at cortisol patterns as far as free cortisol for a long time, up and down throughout the day or not, what does that mean? Um, and then we brought into the story the metabolites, right? So looking at free cortisol, adding free cortisone, which is unique, and then these cortisol and cortisone metabolites, uh, which is nice because we like to be comprehensive, but then it creates a whole like new list of patterns and things that we need to interpret uh, for our providers. So we want to go through some of those with you today. Yes, let's do it. So let's start with the easy ones. So why do we care about the metabolites, right? Sometimes the metabolites add to the story in a way that's changing what you think of in terms of what's going on with the patient. Sometimes they're confirming what you think. Let's start with a person who has high cortisol. So we look at free cortisol, it's high. We know that's going to be an issue in terms of maybe anxiety or depression, they're stressed or whatever. So if the free cortisol is elevated and you as a clinician, then in our tests are also looking at what we call metabolized cortisol, which these are big concentration, like lots of them. When you look at our reports, they're in the hundreds and thousands instead of single and double digits. What does it mean to you when the free cortisol is elevated and the metabolites are also elevated? What does that, what does that add to the story for you? Yeah, so that just confirms that you've got high cortisol. Your adrenals are working overtime. So the metabolites, they really do add to the picture because when the body's done with cortisol and cortisone, it metabolizes it. And the metabolites, as you said, tend to be very plentiful. There tends to be like in the thousands. If you look at the number, metabolized cortisol, it's usually like 3,500. So there's a lot of metabolites. And it can give you an idea of overall production of cortisol from the adrenal glands. So when you've got high cortisol in the saliva or in the urine in the free form, right. and you have high metabolized cortisol, then you know, okay, yeah, they're making a lot of cortisol. Okay, so when one is elevated and the metabolites are also elevated, it's confirmatory. So anything new or interesting when we're on the low side, meaning my free cortisol is low, so now I think, ah, I don't think you make very much cortisol, and then the metabolites are also low. Is that the same story there, that it's just helping you be more confident in that conclusion? Yeah, it's just confirming, okay, we got low adrenal output. Maybe this is some sort of chronic picture, chronic stress, chronic inflammation. And while you're on that, let me, let me ask you... Um, how do you differentiate between you don't make very much cortisol um, 
as, as a, a story which means, hey, you're tired or whatever, relative to someone who actually has suppressed uh, cortisol. And I guess I'm thinking of like, like true Addison's disease. Like what does Addison's disease look like on the low end relative to someone who's just sort of struggling to make adequate cortisol to where they feel good? Yeah, so Addison's disease, you don't see a diurnal pattern. It tends to be just a flat line of free cortisol and free cortisone. And with the metabolized cortisol, it's very, very low. Okay. A lot of times it's below 500. Okay. Yeah, in my mind, I've always had like 1,000 because we sort of tend to obsess with round numbers. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> if you're below 1,000, you know, I'm wondering. And then if you see the free cortisol yep. basically like close to zero, um, then that's a pretty good confirmation. that. And we tend to think of Addison's, but do you tend to see... Uh, patients coming through that look like that more that have Addison's disease actually, or where they're taking some sort of medication that's uh, just suppressing and knocking down their cortisol production. Yeah. So most of the time they don't have Addison's. Most of the time they're taking prednisone or they got a hydrocortisone shot. So we know these glucocorticoids can really suppress adrenal output. And so a lot of times, yeah, if they're taking prednisone for months on end, or even, right. even just like a prednisone pack, they're right. going to have some adrenal suppression after that. And, and you know what, that actually leads back into the high cortisol story that I think actually I want to stop and, and make sure that you can, um, help people with this. Uh, I'm stressed, I'm inflamed, I make a lot of cortisol. That guy has an adrenal tumor or a, a pituitary tumor that's making ACTH and I'm cranking out cortisol because of that. So Cushing's disease, right? Like how do you differentiate uh, between someone who you need to calm them down and, and deal with stress and, and cortisol production and differentiate that from someone where you either need to do more work or you need to shuttle them off to your friend who's an endocrinologist to yeah. do a workup for Cushing's. How are you differentiating on the Dutch test uh, between those scenarios? So if there's a tumor or there's Cushing's, then, then you'll lose your diurnal pattern okay. again. So you'll just have high cortisol throughout the day. A lot of times the nighttime or that bedtime urine cortisol or salivary cortisol is more than four times the upper limit. And then if you do an insomnia sample, a lot of times that's elevated too. Right. So it just never, it never suppresses. It never comes down. Okay. And I think that four, four times is a, is a nice number. Um, and, and to be clear with people, when we dig through that, that's from the literature, um, because we haven't tested enough people that have a confirmed tumor or whatever. But if you're looking at bedtime samples and you look at that upper limit and you're four times as high, maybe you're suspicious. And then you're looking at the rest of the panel. And if it's likewise, like way up there oh. at similar levels, but the, the interesting thing with that is you, you can sneak into the normal range in some of those early morning samples, which is why doing like a morning serum cortisol isn't that differentiating for something like Cushing's, but flat, really high at bedtime. And then those metabolites also really high is when you should start thinking about Cushing's as opposed to just a high cortisol producer. Yeah, exactly. Then I start thinking, okay, endocrinologist. Right. Right. Time for some help. <laughs> yeah, here comes my patient. <laughs> right. Okay. So those are kind of like the softball ones, right? Like mm -hmm. the cortisol is high, the metabolites are high. This all makes sense. So let's talk about the ones um, that end up resulting in people on the phone with you, um, which is when those tell a different story. So we talk about the metabolites as being the best marker for overall production of cortisol. And then the free cortisol tells us our stress response and that diurnal pattern of free cortisol. So let's start with the free cortisol is low. 
or relatively low and the metabolites are much, much higher. So now what are you thinking about in terms of what that means for a patient? Yeah, so this is where providers have more difficulty. It gets a little more confusing. It's not as clear, right? right? But a lot of times when someone has low free cortisol but higher metabolized cortisol, right. then you you often see that with obesity, blood sugar issues, uh, stress, inflammation. Um, it could mean that they're metabolizing and clearing out their cortisol quickly. And you can see that with hyperthyroidism, for okay. example. But if you go back to talking about people who are really overweight, it turns out that that fat tissue actually takes cortisol from circulation. So the fat tissue kind of steals cortisol from circulation to use it for its own metabolic needs and then metabolizes it. So a lot of times you'll see low free cortisol in circulation in the urine or the saliva, but high metabolites because the fat tissue is still using that cortisol and metabolizing it. And there was a recent study, I think it was 2019 or 2020, where they showed that as your waist-to-hip ratio went up, so as you gain more and more weight, your free cortisol tends to drop. Okay, so, so if we're getting heavier people, our free cortisol might drop a little bit, um, which is really contrary to what a lot of people have said just in terms of general thinking about the relationship between cortisol and weight gain and fat mass and that sort of thing. Yes. But then the metabolites themselves, the metabolites of that free cortisol, which again is a little lower, um, those climb really high in those cases. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate because like the fat tissue is getting a lot of exposure to cortisol, but since the free cortisol in circulation is so low, like that's what all the other tissues are getting. That's what your brain is feeling. Right, so your brain's being told I don't have enough cortisol, and and you continue to produce it, but it continues to get siphoned off. Yeah. By okay, so you said overweight. What were what were some of the other causes of this picture of clearing the cortisol such that there's a lot of metabolites and not very much free cortisol? Obesity and obesity, blood sugar issues, blood sugar, inflammation, uh, hyperthyroidism. The way I remember it is, you wouldn't want high cortisol and high thyroid hormones. You'd be so anxious, your, your bone health would be out the window. <laughs> so, gotcha. so usually with hyperthyroidism, you have lower free cortisol. Right. So, okay. So it's cranking up the clearance of cortisol yep. if you have too much thyroid, which you see in people with something like Graves um, and maybe more commonly in someone who's just overdoing it a little bit on the thyroid medication uh, when they yeah. start off as hypothyroid. Yeah, exactly. And, and the research even shows with hyperthyroidism, you tend to have, like women tend to have higher androgens. And it oh, makes sense because when metabolized cortisol goes up, you tend to see overall adrenal output going up. And the adrenals in women especially make a lot of androgens. Uh, so you tend to see androgens go up too. Oh, that's interesting. I'm making more cortisol. As a consequence, I'm making more DHEA, which then trickles down to testosterone and the other androgens. And um, that's, a, that's an interesting connection. Yeah. So if we take that pattern and, and invert it, um, and we have low metabolites, which imply low production, yet the free cortisol is not also low. Maybe it's normal, maybe it's high, but it's this picture of not getting rid of your cortisol, not metabolizing your cortisol. Um, what sort of patients and clinical pictures tend to look like that? Yeah, so with that, you tend to see it with hypothyroidism, and you tend to see it with things that slow down metabolism rate. So hypothyroidism, we know low thyroid slows down metabolism. Right, rate. that makes sense. But also low calorie intake, even anorexia. Uh, I look at how much 
patients are exercising relative to the calories that they're taking in. Besides that, we've got sluggish liver clearance and poor mitochondrial function, because you need that ATP, you need that energy for metabolism. And um, I even think about medications like finasteride, because finasteride we know is a 5-alpha blocker, and those 5-alpha enzymes are involved in cortisol clearance. So I wonder about these medications and their effect on cortisol clearance. Yeah, I don't know how much you see that in the literature, but I do know we had one, one case, so you don't want to build too much of a case on an anecdote, but yeah. uh, a gentleman who had really, really high free cortisol, a lot of anxiety, um, and things related to that, but then his metabolites were super low. And so then when you flip back to the androgen page, you see this just hardcore five beta metabolism of the androgens, mm -hmm. but those drugs are not that selective, right? You have, I think two different types of five alpha, uh, reductase enzyme. Maybe there are more than that, but those, those drugs, uh, block, 5-alpha, but they also block 5-beta to a, to a lesser degree. So it seemed like for that particular gentleman that, that the medications were just hammering that enzyme or enzymes um, so that his cortisol just couldn't clear and get out of the way, even though he wasn't making very much. He had really high cortisol. It seemed like for him the causal thing was, was potentially that, the medication. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about um, what some of these different patterns look like in terms of cortisol metabolites. Part of the confusion uh, I think that people have oftentimes is we're measuring, when we say metabolized cortisol, it's tetrahydrocortisol, tetrahydrocortisone. They're, they're not that interesting in and of themselves. They don't have clinical impact, um, but they're sort of like the bucket at the end of the day that catches all of the cortisol that you make, and we can infer some things from those. Cortisol is the active form. Cortisone is the inactive form, but it's also a metabolite. So that gets really confusing, I think, sometimes in terms of the lingo. So can you explain for us what, like what cortisone is and how it relates to cortisol? Yeah, definitely. So as you said, free cortisol is the active form. Free cortisone is the inactive form. And for some reason, dodgeball comes to mind, and I just think of Ben Stiller and Vince Vaughn on the sidelines. <laughs> but basically, cortisone is like the guys on the sidelines in dodgeball. And cortisol is the active form. It's the guys that are actually in the game playing. And so cortisone, what's unique about cortisone is even though it's inactive, it can become active. So those players on the sidelines can go into the game and start playing, right? And so cortisone can be activated to cortisol in the tissues. And it's a great way for the body to regulate active cortisol levels in the tissues. So on the Dutch test, we have this little fan that tells us you, you're either preferring uh, cortisol or cortisone. What story is that telling if I'm preferring one over the other? Yeah, that's a really good question too. A lot of people look at the graphs. So they look at the urinary free cortisol and cortisone graphs or, or the saliva graphs mm -hmm. when they're looking at the balance between cortisol and cortisone systemically. But we don't want to do that. We just have to keep in mind that when we're looking at the free cortisol and free cortisone in the urine and the saliva, we're looking through the window of the kidneys and the salivary glands. And there's an enzyme that lives in the kidneys and the salivary glands that can affect the balance of free cortisol and free cortisone. What we want to do when we want to see the systemic balance, we want to look at the metabolites. So we know that when the body's done with free active cortisol, it metabolizes it to THF. And when the body's done with inactive cortisone, it metabolizes it to THE. And cortisone and THE both end with an E, so it's easy to remember. 
but you want to look at that fan gauge on the Dutch test. So if, they're, if their fan gauge is pushing more towards the THF, the cortisol metabolites, then we know systemically they probably have more in the form of cortisol in the active form when it was metabolized and vice versa. One of the annoying things about biochemistry and cortisol is everywhere we go hunt for cortisol in the place that gives us that sample, there is metabolism from the active cortisol to cortisone, not in the other direction, right? So we see that there is a diurnal pattern of cortisol and also a diurnal pattern of cortisone. And that's because both of them are in those concentrations, but it's also because in the saliva gland, cortisol gets pushed to cortisone before it comes out in your saliva. And then let's let's go look at urine. Well, in the kidney, it's the same thing. The kidney's trying to keep cortisol off that aldosterone receptor so it doesn't raise your blood pressure too much. So in that, before it spills into the urine, some of that cortisol gets converted, converted to cortisone, and so we see them both. But the consequence of that is because there's this localized conversion, when you want to ask the question, okay, is, is Noah's cortisol or cortisone, which one's sort of winning that big tug of war, uh, you don't want to look at cortisol and cortisone as the primary way of asking that question. You look at the metabolite. So do I flood more tetrahydrocortisone or do I flood more tetrahydrocortisol? So we look at the ratio of those. And if it's tilted in one direction, it implies that in your systemic overall tug of war, it's favoring active or favoring inactive. And the use of the cortisone itself is just to confirm that up and down pattern. Because you will see, because mostly you go to a different lab and you get tested, all they give you is cortisol. And most of the time that tells you the story, right? And then you see these oddball cases every once in a while where cortisol, let's say, is, is low normal, this nice little picture. And then you look over at cortisone and it's out of range high. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means in that particular tissue that a lot of that cortisone that you're staring at like seconds before it went into your sample used to be cortisol. So I think of it as like a shadow of cortisol. It's like the shadow. And if the shadow is telling a very different story, you kind of need to pull your interpretation in that direction. And, you know, we wish it was this easy paint by numbers stuff, but, yeah. um, you know, and most of the time they align really well. And in that case, it's just confirmatory. But when they tell a little bit of a different story, that's when you get on the phone with Kelly and say, Kelly, help yeah. me with this. You know, what yeah. does this mean? So, um, so the cortisone and cortisol tell an interesting story, but they do also bring some complexity to, uh, to the case as well. Yeah, they do. But a lot of times I'm like, well, I'm so happy that we measured the cortisone because we would have missed all this cortisol. If we only looked at the free cortisol, we would have missed all of that free cortisol that got deactivated in the salivary glands, in the urine, and went to cortisone. So yeah, having that additional free cortisone graph can really help just add to the picture. One of the other, um, I think, patterns that's interesting is what you do with somebody who the free cortisol is not high. It's like stupid high, right? And then you look at the cortisone, you think, oh my gosh, they have Cushing's disease or whatever. And then you look over at the cortisone and you see a relatively normal pattern. So what do you typically tend to think of when you see, and of course I'm sort of setting you up for, for, for this one, but when you see those stupid high cortisols and then a relatively no, normal cortisone, uh, what does that tend to imply uh, for our patients? Or what's the first question you're going to ask? Okay, so the first question you got to ask is, is this contamination? Is this hydrocortisone cream contamination, for hydrocortisone example? Hydrocortisone, mean, and this gets confusing, is cortisol. Yes. Right, cortisone, hydrocortisone, sometimes people think, oh, it's cortisone. Hydrocortisone is cortisol. Actually cortisol. Okay. 
So if you put hydrocortisone cream on a rash and then you touch your Dutch sample paper, it's going to affect the free cortisol. But the beauty of it is it doesn't affect the free cortisone because that hydrocortisone cream would have to get into your body to be then right. deactivated to cortisone to show up on the, the cortisone graph. So if the cortisol, the free cortisol, is really high or there's no diurnal pattern, it looks wonky, but the cortisone still has a diurnal pattern, then we look at the cortisone to get the data, to get the information we want. And the nice thing about that is if you can actually confirm and be confident that it's contamination and not some really weird, crazy tumor and metabolism pattern, yeah. uh, if you can confirm that, it's, that they're using hydrocortisone, uh, there are actually papers that show that looking at cortisone itself is a good surrogate for your diurnal pattern of cortisol. So that's, that's why we spend the extra money to get mass spectrometers so that we don't just get cortisol, we get, a, we get cortisone. And again, a lot of times it just confirms the story you're already looking at, but occasionally it sort of comes in there and saves the day. And contamination yeah. with hydrocortisone is one of those situations. Oh yeah. I'm always looking at the cortisone graph. I feel like it adds a lot of value to the test for a lot of people. And then the, the caution with that is just not over-interpreting that, right? Of not allowing that in your mind to represent that patient's overall cortisol-cortisone balance. For that, as you mentioned, we defer to the metabolites and the message that they, that they the, the story that they paint. Exactly. Exactly. I keep it simple. I say, do you want to know the balance of cortisol and cortisone in your urine or your saliva? Then look at the graphs. If you want to know the balance of cortisol and cortisone systemically in your body, look at the metabolites. That's a really nice way to say it. And in doing so, you've, you've brought us through from up and down patterns of cortisol, cortisone, metabolites, like there's a lot there. So tell us just for you, as you see one set of results and you're going to sort of work your way through that, uh, I tend to think of it in terms of like a hierarchy of information and what it tells you. Like how do you like literally work your way through the adrenal part portion of um, a Dutch complete or a Dutch plus? Like, how are you mentally uh, digesting that? Yeah, that's a good question. So the first thing I do is I look at the metabolized cortisol and the total androgen output, um, total adrenal androgen output or the total okay. DHEA. A lot of times the metabolized cortisol, of course, will tell you overall adrenal output of cortisol, and it can tell you how hard the adrenals are working. Right. And if you see a high metabolized cortisol and a high DHEA, then you know, okay, the adrenals are probably just working overtime. Right. So that can give me an idea of overall total production. And then after that, I look down at the graphs, at the free cortisol and the free cortisone. And the first thing I ask is, is there a diurnal pattern? Or is it flatlined? Is it flatlined, but really, you know, really, really low? Like right. Addison's or when people use prednisone or other glucocorticoids? Or is it kind of flatlined, but really, really high? Like perhaps with... Um, Cushing's disease, which is not always flatlined, but doesn't have that diurnal pattern. So if they have a diurnal pattern, you know, that's great. And then I kind of look at, well, is it within range or is it a high diurnal pattern? Is it a low diurnal pattern? So that can give you a little more information about the active cortisol and circulation. Like what are the tissues feeling? And the third thing I do is I look at the kind of the balance or the ratio between metabolized cortisol and the total free cortisol, the total free cortisone. And usually you want those dials to kind of line up, point in the same direction, and both be within range. Then you know you don't have any metabolism issues. But like we said earlier, if we have a high metabolized cortisol 
in a low total free cortisol, then we might be clearing our cortisol out quickly. And the same is true with the opposite. You know, low metabolized cortisol, high total free cortisol, we might not be metabolizing our cortisol out well enough. You know, it might be kind of sluggish. And then, of course, after that, I look at the, the dial to see the THE and THF preference, which tells you systemically, is there more cortisol in the active form or in the inactive form? So early on, you're kind of looking at, um, if you think of in terms of like a tug of war, the free cortisol and the metabolites of cortisol. And if those tell the same story, then you have sort of a simplified job of, of sort of telling this patient's story. Yes. And then if they tell different stories, then you either have a story of... Uh, increased or like sped up cortisol clearance, like rapid cortisol clearance or sluggish cortisol clearance. And then you just have some additional questions to ask about what's driving uh, the upregulated or downregulated processing of cortisol. So that, that seems like uh, a pretty intuitive way to, to go through that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Works well. Well, we know that one of the challenges that our providers have when they onboard with us is just that the test is comprehensive and it's a lot to wrap your head around. So really appreciate you coming and taking this complex topic of cortisol and the patterns that we see and distilling that down for, for our providers so they can make sense of that. And we know if they don't, they can always get on the phone with you and your team and you guys do a great job. So thank you for coming and explaining uh, that to us. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kelly. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us again on the podcast. I know this conversation will help a lot of our providers. And thank you to all of our listeners. Your support has been amazing. And we're so thankful for liking, subscribing, and sharing that you're listening on social media. If you're not already following us on Instagram, our handle is at Dutch Test. And we'd love for you to tag us in a post and share something that you've learned so far from the podcast. So stay tuned for next week's episode where we continue our endocrine essentials theme and speak with Dr. Allison Smith about oxidative stress. I'm Noah Reed. Until next time.